You're listening to the Who's Driving Your Car podcast, episode 120. Hey, y'all, we are back again. It's bro lady Jeanette here. We are back again with another episode throwback. This is part two of part one. Last week was part one. This is part two of Sean Cochran's episode with the bros. Uh, This is from episode 16, way back in the day. Again, we have had tons of new listeners, and we want you guys to hear some of our favorite stuff. So listen in part two with Sean Cochran and the bros. Enjoy this week's episode. Hello and welcome to the Who's Driving Your Car podcast, where we discuss not only who or what might be driving your life, but also the great views and experiences along the way. Do you drive in the fast lane like my wife, or do you feel like you're stuck in first gear? You only get one life to live, and it can be either a total wreck or a beautiful cruise into the sunset. We are three friends that have collectively experienced almost anything that could possibly happen in this crazy world. And we'll be discussing our personal reflections and experiences so hopefully you can avoid running out of gas and truly enjoy the wind blowing in your hair. So hop on in with us for a little road trip called life. And let's discuss who's driving your car. Aye! Alright guys, welcome back to Who's Driving Your Car with our visit with Sean, part two. We appreciate everyone tuning in as normal, and we'll look forward to getting everyone's thoughts and comments after this episode. And until then, we'll see you on the backside. Yeah, take us on your journey after the the treatment facility. So, um, so I came home, and I stayed with my parents, and I kind of made a decision um, that I was going to change everything in my life, so I was going to go into the military. Um, I went to the um, Army recruitment place and took, uh, whatever tests you take. Um, they were super excited, uh, (laughs) about my, um, my tests, you know, and maybe that's just the way they act with everybody. But, um, I think it was just the math stuff that they were just impressed that I was able to do it without paper. Um, and so that was my plan. And so I was running and I was, I was working out and, um, you know, to have money to, to pay for, um, food and, you know, protein powder, I, uh, I needed a job. So I started bagging groceries at market basket, um, uh, which I was fine with, even though they told me I was overqualified until, um, <laughs> there's a couple of things that happened. There was, um, at one point there was a, a couple of people who I had gone to high school with who came in <clears throat> and I'm, I'm sure they were doctors by this point. And I was bagging groceries and it was a little embarrassing. And then there was uh, a friend's mom who, um, I brought the groceries out to her car and she gave me like a 37 cent tip. And I realized that that's <laughs> what I was dealing with and, and not to, not to belittle that, you know, a job is a job and that's why I did it. And I was proud to have a job after what had, what I had been through, <clears throat> but I kind of realized that that's not the direction that I um, that I was going to take. And so, um, so I quit after that and I, uh, went, um, and got back in college and, um, from a mental standpoint, Sean, was this like you were kind of becoming the person you were throughout your growing up or were you somewhat forming a new mental identity and so forth as what you wanted out of life? You know what I'm saying? Like prior to going off the tracks a little bit, 
did you feel like you were becoming your old self or was this still like a transformation and involvement? We talk about that a lot on the podcast into a different direction you wanted in your life or maybe a mixture of the two. No, not at that point. I would say at that point that I was just, um, it, it was a mindset of, uh, those years didn't happen. Mm-hmm. And so just right back on the same track. Cause I didn't know anything else. I didn't, I hadn't done anything. I, I had this plan in my head and then I went off the track. Um, you know, and, and so I had no other plans. Right. And so I got back on track and, um, and was on that same direction. It wasn't, it wasn't until, uh, three or four years ago that I, um, thought anything different. So what was the catalyst to, uh, get you back on track and get you in school, um, finish your undergraduate degree and go to law school? Um, I think I realized that, uh, based on the things that the people in the military were telling me about my test scores, um, the things that I was going to be doing would be, um, um, I guess like, uh, intelligence type stuff, um, stuff that was, uh, mentally stimulating <clears throat> and, and it just didn't at that point in my life, it didn't make sense to me to, um, to, to force myself to do all the physical labor if I was going to be having a desk job. And so if I was going to have a desk job, I could, I could just go back to school and have a desk job yeah. um, and not, not be yelled Minus at. Minus the push-ups. Yeah, not be yelled at and told to run. And so, um, and, and I've never been a really big runner. Uh, I've always been a really big runner. I've never um, enjoyed running uh, because I was always a big runner. Um, <laughs> So, uh, so, uh, um, well, I think you still have some of the, you need a little bit of this in your life because I know you went back and joined CrossFit where they yell at you and they still make you run. That's right. Now, now do you not have a personal trainer? I do. We're getting off the tracks, but you've joined Lee and T-Claude on this a little bit. Well, no, no, no. T-Claude joined me and Lee. Oh, you were ahead of T-Claude. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Shout out to Jeff. So so he's got someone telling him when and when not to run, but I think you can make some of those calls since you're paying the bill. That's right, but um, but the difference is that uh, that it's not one person. And and, and look, I, I'm a huge fan of CrossFit. Um, it's not for me. I, I really enjoyed the camaraderie for a long time, and so I'm not in any way putting that down. I really loved the, the coaches, the places that I was at. Um, you know, they were fantastic, and all the people that I met were great. Um, you know, I'm older. You know, I, I turned 42 this week. And my body um, doesn't work like it used to. And so uh, what I really enjoy about what I'm doing now is that he's not yelling at me. Um, <laughs> and, and that, you know, when, when things are not, uh, are, there's a lot more personal attention to, you know, the, to, to my physical capabilities. Yeah, everybody's, the, I still remember doing that when I was playing ball. It, it's good to be on a specific re- regime, regiment, I mean, for what you need or what fits you in that place. But spinning back to the story, so at some point you decide to go through law school. I mean, I'm the one at the table here who can relate a little bit. Getting in is, is a deal in and of itself. How did that process go for you, especially based on your academic record, the stuff you had been through personally in your life? Tell the uh, listeners a, bit, a little bit about that path. Yeah, so uh, um, it was just, <laughs> you know, kind of like what I talked about earlier. There was nothing to lose by trying to go to law school. Um you know, my, my, my test scores were very good. My second, my last two years of college, um, which, which, uh, I will say that the entire time I was waiting tables, um, after I'd failed out of college the third time, 
and when people would ask what was going on, I always told them I have two years of college left, um, which was true, but there was seven years that I had two years of college left. Um, and so when I finally went back, you know, I did, I did really well. Um, you know, I was much more focused and, uh, and, and you know, I, I didn't have the, I, I wasn't allowing myself to participate in things that were holding me back before. And so, um, so it was worth a shot, you know, it would, I didn't really know what the worst is. There's four law schools here. I, I was pretty confident I could get into one of them. Um, and, uh, uh, and so I applied, um, you know, I had to write a, uh, a letter. Personal story. Yeah. Personal story. Yeah. Um, and you know, it took me, uh, I don't know, whatever the day was that it had to be postmarked by to, um, to actually get to it because I was so concerned about, uh, how do I do this? How do I explain that I'm coming out with a 2.76, um, grade point average and trying to go to law school when, um, Dang, dude, that's impressive to get it to a two seven six from where you're coming from. From a one point seven six, yeah. Yeah. It took a lot that's of force. That's a good run. <laughs> I, um, so, uh, um, so what I did is I, uh, I, I just I prayed and I prayed and I prayed and then I finished praying and I, and I just started working and I created a table and I just threw a whole bunch of numbers in there and then I told a story about all the numbers, um, you know, and uh, and I was completely honest. I uh, I brought up the drugs, I brought up the treatment, I brought up, um, you know, my, my grade point average that I had failed out of college three times, you know, I mean, they weren't, they were going to see it all. Mm-hmm. There was no reason for me to hide anything. And, and I needed to do something that was going to, um, set me apart. And I think it worked. So when did you start law school, Sean? I started law school in, um, 2008. And where did we attend? LSU. Tiger tiger at the table. (laughs) And so, uh, when you got out of law school, was your plan always to come back to Lake Charles? Um, no, I would not say that. I think, I think I can tell you that when I started law school, I think in the first two or three weeks, they send somebody by to all the classes and they say, um, you know, we want to talk to you about the realities of being an attorney, of getting out of law school Mm -hmm. and being an attorney. Um, you know, write down the three reasons that, uh, the top three reasons that you want to be a lawyer you know, and, um, uh, everyone else's three reasons were, uh, much more, um, altruistic than mine. I think I wrote money, power, and prestige. And, um, <laughs> and so then she spent the next 45 minutes explaining to us, um, that we were not going to get out of law school and be rich. Um, and you learn we how to talk to animals, not, you can get that money, power, and prestige. <laughs> we were not going to have uh, power because we were going to be the low man on the totem pole, and um, that's also not very prestigious. And and I just thought, I just like I remember thinking she has no idea what she's talking about. Like I am getting these three things the day after I get my law degree, and um, she was right. Uh, but so so no, I didn't want to come back to Lake Charles at that point. I wanted to. Um, I, I interviewed in New Orleans, and in Baton Rouge, and I. Uh, I can remember, though, however, being in an interview at the on the twenty second floor of the Poydras Building in downtown New Orleans, and looking out the window um, at downtown New Orleans, and uh, and then for anyone from New Orleans, I apologize if that's not downtown or uptown or the warehouse district or the CBD or wherever it is. The Poydras <laughs> Building is where I was, and looking down and uh, and as the guy's asking me questions, I don't even know the question he asked. I just remember thinking there is absolutely nothing you can say or do that will get me back in this building. Um, it's not, it wasn't the pace of life that I wanted, you know, um, I wanted to, uh, 
to, to be home. You know, I didn't want to wear a suit every day. Um, and so, uh, you know, so that kind of went and then I, uh, and then I had to get back and wear Prana pants, huh? Yeah, well, I didn't know about that stuff. Yet. <laughs> I was still one of the best things lines. Hot Dog actually did yeah. before you. Yeah, well, I'm going to give Stephen credit for that. Oh my um, god! <laughs> so, uh, but but any any pants that stretch work well on a big guy. So I, um, so yeah, so it was it was at that point. It was during that interview where I decided I was coming back to Lake Charles. So um, as getting into into law school, so I'm working at uh, at a restaurant. At, like while for, for the last two years of school of college and, and while I'm applying for law school and I'm working in an event and, um, and there's a, a local, a guy from Lake Charles, his name is Rick Richard. He has done, um, outstanding things since he's come back to the community, uh, in building Lake Charles back up <clears throat> and building up downtown and, and, um, really restoring, um, w what he had is his memories from growing up in Lake Charles and it's fantastic the things that he's done. Um, he had worked as, uh, under, under Reagan as the, um, as the director of the federal energy regulation commission, um, the youngest person ever appointed to that position. And, uh, and then he was the CEO or, you know, on the board or chairman or something of several, uh, energy companies before he came back. And he came back and started doing these things for the community. And I was introduced to him at this event by, um, by, uh, an accountant in town that I know. And, uh, and I don't remember where the conversation went, but, uh, but however it went, it led me to ask him if he would mind sending, um, a letter of recommendation for me, uh, to law awesome. school. And, um, and he said, yes. And so I think he was the, maybe the president of the, the law school alumni board mm -hmm. or something at that year, or maybe he was on the board of trustees. I don't remember. And so I just asked him if he'd do that. And he said, yes. And so, um, he did. Uh, and then I got in, um, <laughs> yeah, that, I was about to say to have Rick write something. I know Rick pretty well too, to have him write something on your behalf speaks a lot to you in the character and what he thought of you too. And then, uh, a week later I read that he had just donated $500,000 to the law school. <laughs> so that's how much it costs to get me into law school. Wow. That is how you offset a, uh, a, a 2.76 in failing out of college three times and, um, being a recovering addict is $500,000 that, that hasn't worked for all those people in California lately, but, um, I think the statute of limitations has passed for me to get in trouble. Man, he must've liked you a lot. That's a good story. <laughs> I think he probably, I think he probably already given the money before they, before <laughs> so Sean, um, during that journey, during that time period, were you having to stick, did you do any other type of like post, I wouldn't know the ter correct term for it, but post like treatment, treatment on your own, like sessions, anything to kind of keep you, I would just call it on the straight and narrow. Um, or were you, was it kind of like a boom 180 and you were good? How was that whole process during those times evolving for you? Yeah. So during, during that time period, um, I did not, um, I just, uh, didn't do drugs. And so, um, you so know, it was I, like a light bulb in your head. that was after the clinic, you were good. You didn't have like the, uh, the want or need, or would you still feel that? Or you were just like, man, I'm good. I'm moving forward. You know, I would not be comfortable right now, even being in a room if, uh, if people started, uh, putting stuff out on the table. Um, so I'm not going to go so far as to say I didn't have the want or the need. I, I'm going to say that um, I had an overwhelming feeling that my life had been destroyed as well as the lives of many people um, 
some people, you know, friends that I'm still trying to connect with and wow. it's been 14 years. So, um, so it was bad. I mean, it was, it was, it was a very bad situation. And I think that the fear of getting back to that point was stronger than my desire to, um, to put myself back in that place. Yeah, I know a lot of people do do aftercare meetings, AA meetings, Al-Anon meetings, other things like that. So that isn't something that you went to at any point in time? Yes. So after I got out of law school um, and I applied to the to the bar, um, I had to fill out uh, a character and fitness application, which the, the question, and I remember the question because it said, have you at any time in the last five years been um, to treatment for, you know, whatever? And, uh, and it had been, um, I don't know, five years and three months. And so the honest answer to that question would have been no, but they, they put it in you that the CIA, the NSA and the FBI (laughs) will be looking into your background to determine whether or not you've lied. And so my response was, although it was not in the last five years in an effort to be completely forthcoming here. Um, and that triggered, uh, a red flag, which, um, which led them to, um, to the, uh, lawyer's assistance program. Um, the director of the lawyer's assistance program had me go and get evaluated, um, for substance abuse and, or use disorder, um, which obviously I was an addict. I mean, that's, that was no question. Um, and so the evaluation said, uh, the evaluator said, I recommend you do, um, two years of aftercare. Uh, no, first I have to have care. So two years, or you have to do a, uh, an intensive outpatient, um, program, uh, then two years of aftercare, then, um, I don't know, a five year monitoring contract. And so, so this is keep in mind by the time we get here, this is six years after I'd gone to treatment. Um, and I had not used since the day that I, uh, got into treatment and, and so that really, that really beat me down. Like I really, uh, questioned whether or not I wanted to be an attorney. We talked to, um, lawyers who specialize in, in, um, that type of stuff. And, and I said, uh, you know, I wanted to know, you know, what's, what are the chances, what's going on? You know, does this something I have to do? And, and the answer across the board was, um, you know, you can fight this, but, uh, the Supreme court pretty much rubber stamps what these people want. And so it, it just wasn't worth it. Um, you know, and I'd gone too hard and, and fought too long to, to get to this point. And so I guess my, my big feeling was that God wanted me to do this. Like I would not have gotten into law school after failing out of college three times if God did not want me to be a lawyer. So if God wants me to be a lawyer, then I'm just going to suck it up and go do this. And so, and I had a hundred thousand dollars in student loans that I had to pay off. Mm-hmm. So, um, so what I had to do is I had to, uh, I had to go to a six week, um, three hours a night for three nights a week, um, intensive outpatient, um, substance abuse program, um, followed by two years of aftercare. Um, during that first 12 month period, um, I was nothing. I couldn't have my law license. I couldn't even ask to have it. Um, I had to have one year proven sobriety through drug tests before they would let me start a five-year contract. <laughs> um, and so, uh, so during that period, and I will say this though, during that period, I learned a lot. Um, 
you know, I, I had referenced earlier that I, that when I got out of treatment, I just stopped and that was it. And it's not something I thought about at all. I didn't right. think about it. Um, you know, it was a point in my life that I was at before that I'm not at now and I don't ever want to be at. So I just did things differently. Um, you know, my understanding of, of addiction and my, my empathy, um, is much greater today. Um, after having, uh, you know, had the, the substance abuse counselor that I had and, um, and after, uh, you know, really kind of, uh, humbling myself to, um, you know, to at least listen, um, you know, I think I have a much better understanding of addiction than I, than I did before. Sean, earlier you alluded to your father's support and the spiritual experience of having the love of a parent and family and friends. At what point in the timeline did you sort of, you know, did you meet your wife and your family grow and, and the experiences you went through? How did that impact the way you handled relationships with her? And, you know, I guess you can you're start having your children and, and being that now being the father who's giving the love to a spouse and children. So, well, I, you know, I, um, I was, uh, you know, like I said, I, um, I didn't do anything different. Like I didn't, I didn't really pay attention to, uh, what was inside of me once I walked out of that treatment center. And so, so I can honestly say that I was still, um, uh, dysfunctional. Um, and so I met my wife, uh, we actually worked together in 2003 at the height of my addiction. Um, she did not know that, uh, and from 2003 until 2010, I think I asked her out seven times that I still have um, in writing. Uh, <laughs> oh, you had a contract, huh? Yeah, contract. You got and, um, I mean, seven times that I can document. <laughs> and, and each of those times she said yes. And then each of those times she, um, she uh, canceled at the last minute. Um, and... And then I was, I was with a buddy in New Orleans who is an attorney and we were talking and, uh, you know, and, and, and I don't know exactly what I said. I think I said, man, as soon as I get back to Lake Charles, um, this is probably in October of my last year of law school, I'm going to, um, if she is working in Lake Charles, cause I think she was in Lafayette at the time, I'm going to, uh, I'm going, I'm going to go out with her. And, and he said, man, that's a long time if you wait. Uh, she might already be married. And so, uh, <laughs> so that was actually probably November. And so in December I was home working and, uh, uh, at Christmas break and I ran into her and I asked her to a Christmas party and we, um, we, man, we, she came, she showed up and, uh, and we have been together ever since. So that's, uh, eight years, um, nine, nine years. I, don't know. I have a question awesome. for you, Sean. 10 years. <laughs> well, it awesome. could be when. Yeah, want, deciding to want to go out with your wife, job interviews, or just, you know, uh, regaining friendships with friends of the past, meeting new people. Would you let or would it be hard to, to get put yourself out there with what had occurred in your past, the, getting off the road a little bit and then getting back on? Were you conscien conscientious of it or was it something you were like, hey, I'm going to own this? How was that process for you? It's not something that I really shared with anyone. Um, I was embarrassed. I... Uh, I did on my second date with my wife, um, I did tell her because, um, if we were going to keep going out, like it was something she was going to find out. And if it's not something she is interested in right now, then she needed to tell me and get it over with. And, um, 
I don't know. I think she was drunk and she didn't care. <laughs> <laughs> but that was that was the. Uh, so he likes to party. Okay. Uh, so that was the extent of the. Um, I don't think that's the way she took it. I think she just didn't grasp it. Like she'll tell you now. Like I didn't understand what that meant, um, and uh, like I didn't know what I was getting into. And so she. Uh, but she. Um, I'm trying to get back to the to my response to your question about in regards to um people accepting you with what it basically occurred other than that i didn't tell anyone i um you know i didn't tell my employer until uh the bar association came down on me and i knew i was gonna have to do this because then i was scared i was gonna lose my job and so i went and i said hey this is the story this is what's going on this is what's um what i have to do And, and they were very very gracious you know they they let me keep working there um i just wasn't an attorney i did everything that that attorneys do accept the thing to sign, sign pleadings and, yeah. and go to court. And so, um, that was probably you know, actually good for you in your legal career to learn. That's what I would have done background. anyway. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so it kind of worked out. Um, they didn't pay me as an attorney, so it worked out better for them. But, um, <laughs> you know, but then, then when the time was up, you know, I, I had a job and I was very grateful for that. Um, and I, and I still am. I, uh, <sighs> But, but that's, that was it. Like, I didn't really say anything. I would go to, uh, functions and I would, um, drink, uh, like tonic water with a lime or Sprite with a lime because I didn't want to have to talk about why I wasn't drinking. Um, you know, I, I know now nobody cares. Uh, trust me, nobody cares. Dude. But I, I didn't that know that then. Like <laughs> yeah. it, it was such a big deal to me that I didn't want to want to have that conversation. Um, so yeah, it was, uh, it was not, um, it was not until, um, I mean, I know I told you. You told me right out the get. Just had that feeling. So I, when I started my law firm, I had a consultant who, um, who said, uh, you know, the way to connect with people is their vulnerability, which that's probably not what he said. That's actually Brene Brown. <laughs> but, uh, but you know he's the one that, that sent me the video of Brene Brown so maybe that is what he said I don't know but so um, so you know I, I, I explored that um, you know through my website and uh, I wasn't completely I was pretty vague on my website just suggesting that I've been through a lot you know and I understand what people are going through when they're going through a lot but um, but that's probably what prompted me to um, to be honest with uh, with you when we had lunch uh, um, I would say, uh, did you know Steven? No, I didn't know initially whenever I first met you. Um, and I remember, uh, some other, you know, people in town said, Oh, you know, Sean's been through a lot. Um, and that was pretty much how I was initially introduced to it until later on when I, if I remember if it was whenever you first posted it online or. Uh, I don't remember if we had a discussion about it. I don't directly. think so. Yeah, and I, and I would say, I mean, it <clears throat> did. It was. It made me resonate, connect with you. I thought it was very um, impressive that you would tell me something like that, considering the fact we really didn't even know each other at all. I'd heard of you a little bit. Um, well, to be I fair, I knew, you know, and I know that it's fun to make fun of, of Hot Dog. Um, yep, because he can take it. So but, much uh, fun. Appreciate that, Sean. Finally, one of the things, something nice. One of the things that I knew um, whenever I wanted to go to lunch with you was um, was your faith. And I knew that um, that you were going through some stuff in your life um, that uh, that you were really struggling with. And I and, you know, and I I, I appreciated 
um, the way that you, my understanding or what I was told about the way that you were handling that um, and your feelings towards that situation, and I'm not going to, you know, that's the story for you to tell, but, um, but knowing that, and, you know, I think made it easier for me to, um, to, uh, you know, get to be vulnerable and, and say, Hey, you know, here's some things that I have struggled with and, and I don't want to, you know, spoiler alert, but, um, Matthew was not a homeless drug addict. Um, <laughs> that's my story. His situation is different, but, um, but I, I appreciate it nonetheless. Um, and so that, that definitely made it, uh, made it easier for me, um, to be honest with you, you know, and, and then throughout, throughout time, um, you know, we did get to a point where, uh, well, I guess, you know, for, for, for several years, um, you know, God was calling me to, uh, to share my story. Um, and, uh, I did not want to do that. That sounded horrible. Um, it was, uh, terrifying to think about sharing my story, um, with anyone who I was not forced to tell it to. Um, whether it was in a recovery meeting or, um, or, or something like that. Um, and so, uh, but then, then my cousin died of a heroin overdose and I was, um, and I knew that he was struggling cause my aunt had told me a couple of times, but I, um, I still didn't tell her anything about my life, uh, or my situation. She, my family lives, we're not from here. So, um, all of my extended family lives in different places across the country. So, you know, what my father may have told her, I don't know, but, um, but I was never open with her about it. You know, she, she confided in me some of the things my cousin was doing and then I'd heard more stories and then, um, and then he died and, you know, and I had seen him over those years several times and he was much younger than me. Um, you know, but I was at a point in my life where I was avoiding the fact that that had ever happened to me. And so I was not comfortable I say happened to me. I, I was avoiding the fact that that was a part of my life. And so I was not comfortable, um, bringing that, um, bringing that up with him. And, and I could have, you know, and I could have maybe helped him. You know, maybe he would have listened to me. Maybe he wouldn't have, maybe it would have had an impact. Maybe it wouldn't have. I don't know, but those were all the questions that I was asking myself after he, after he, he overdosed. And so, um, he was quite a bit younger than me. I think probably, uh, eight, eight or nine years, maybe. Um, and so, uh, so that's when I made the decision that I was going to share my story, um, because I didn't want that to happen, um, to anyone else. And so, uh, you know, I, I agonized over it for several days and, um, and I prayed about it a lot and, and, you know, and, and that's typically how I get things down on paper as I pray and pray and pray and pray and pray. And then. I just stopped praying and start typing and it just comes out. And so I, um, the day I was flying to Atlanta for his funeral, I sat down at the computer and I just kind of typed out whatever I thought God was trying to get me to say. And, um, and then I put it on Facebook. Um, and then I went and sat in a chair in my living room and, uh, and cried cathartically for about two hours. Um, First, I texted my wife and my family who were on, my wife was at the beach with her family, um, and my parents were already in Atlanta, uh, and I just texted them and said, hey, I just want you guys to know that I did this, so that- Yeah, because uh, your wife didn't know you were doing it. 
No. Or something. Yeah, maybe you told her. I had told her at one point that I felt like I should share my story, and she was like, I don't know about that. (laughs) Um, And so, uh, and so, um, that's awesome. So, I did, I texted them and said, Hey, this is what just happened. I just want you to know in case you see it. Uh, And then I turned my phone off. Um, And, and I just sat down and I just sweated and cried. And uh, I was just so, like, I was shaking. I was so emotionally overwhelmed. And, um, and then I got ready to go to the airport. Uh, and, um, and I turned my phone back on. And I think I had, like, 30 or 40 text messages um, from people here. Uh, I really expected this to be something that my biggest fear was that other lawyers in town were going to see this. Right. Um, mm-hmm that was my biggest fear was like, how am I, how are people going to act, um, in court next week? Uh, are people just going to be weird? And, um, and so it, you know, it, it's not the reaction that I got at all. You know, um, I feel much better about it today. And you guys asked me if I was nervous when I got here. Um, and I'm not, um, I am still nervous. You should be. And I know what that means. <laughs> so, um, we all, well, I do too, but just concerning. So, uh, uh, so I, so I got several text messages from people just telling me that they'd read it and, and, you know, and sharing their, their feelings and it was all positive stuff. And, um, you know, and then I got a text when I was at the Houston airport, um, sometime around Houston airport is when I realized, uh, cause I, you know, I did tell my, my friend, uh, my good friend, Nick Hunter, who knew everything. Um, I told him that I'd done this and, uh, and I don't remember, I just needed somebody to, to say, you know, it's not the worst idea in the world. Um, I think he said, oh, if that's what you want to do. Um, you know, and so, so I, um, I did it, and, and I think he texted me, and he said, I guess it's not going to have negative consequences um, or something like that. Uh, at that point, I think it had been shared 8,000 times um, all around the world. The world, yeah. Wow. And uh, over the next couple of days, um, I think that, that the story on Facebook was shared uh, 35,000 times. Um, wow, that's amazing. Which is a very surreal experience. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I, I had, uh, I had, you know what happened right before that was um, several people, several famous people had committed suicide. And so um, that plus the, you know, several famous people had committed suicide and everyone on the news kept saying, I just can't imagine like what's like to feel that way, to feel hopeless. And, and I'm watching all these people and I'm like, bullshit. Like, yeah. I don't believe that no person who's on the news knows what it's like to feel hopeless. Um, cause I do. And so, so that's kind of what prompted me that plus the, uh, the, the, the overdose of my cousin and somebody posted a comment on it that said, here's another person trying to exploit, uh, um, Kate Spade's, was it Kate Spade? Uh, yeah, it was one of them, I think. Yeah. I don't want to make Kate Spade commit Perhaps. suicide if she hasn't. So, um, <laughs> Andrew, Andrew, the, the, the chef, um, had committed suicide. Andrew something. I know both of their names, but now I'm nervous. It, it happens to me on the podcast. I couldn't remember yeah. from somewhere. I, I thought hiked, Kate Spade was the etiquette lady. No, she's not. Um, she's a purse lady. Uh, yeah. Okay. So, so whomever it happened to, it happened, and they said, "Here's another person trying to exploit them," and, and I was like, "Man, 
Like I've, I have posted pictures of my children on Facebook a um, hundred times and they might get shared once like by my wife or mom. Um, <laughs> there is nothing that I could have planned to exploit Kate Spade and be go, and go viral. Like that's right. not something that, that people can do unless um, they're already famous. So, uh, so it was no, it was not a plan. You know, my plan was that, that maybe my aunt would see it and feel some comfort that, um, that, you know, maybe somebody that I knew, one of my friends on Facebook that I knew would see it and, and, and feel differently maybe about their family member or their friend and at least reach out to them. That was it. That's all I was hoping. And your prayer, faith, et cetera, brought you to that point too. Something probably beyond your own. hundred percent. Like I'd never even read it. Right. Like I, I typed it out, uh, because I felt like that's what God wanted me to, to say. I hit send and I don't think I read it for, um, a year. Truly incredible. So Sean, um, you know, you've been through a lot of trials, a lot of tribulations. Uh, we know that you've gotten married, um, and you also have some beautiful children. Would you like to talk a little bit about, uh, those in a positive way now? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> um, I hope that nothing that I've said about my, my, uh, wife or children has been negative. And if anyone has construed it as negative, then they are misinterpreting it. My wife is perfect. Um, <laughs> she really is. She's a saint. You know, we didn't get into the dysfunction that I discussed earlier because we, we kind of, I know there's a time limit to this. And uh, since it's my first time here, I um, could go all day, uh, everything to keep me out of the office. So, I, um, <laughs> but, but she's a saint to put up with me today, but I'm a much different in a positive way person today than I was when we started dating and, and were engaged and first got married. And so I would suggest that, um, she was truly a saint to have, uh, to have put up with me during that period of time. Um, while I was still trying to figure out how to, how to deal with, um, the dysfunction that I had created in the previous, um, several years. So my wife is, uh, is a is dentist, a business owner. She is, um, a mom. Um, she works incredibly hard. Um, you know, she is doing very well as a, as a dentist. Um, she, uh, puts in as much effort as she can into everything that she does, including the, the children. Um, I'm not sure that she really wanted to have children. Uh, I think she said she did, but I'm not convinced that that was accurate at the time. <laughs> um, but she understood that that was important to me. I always wanted a big family. Um, you know, I waited kind of a uh, long to start, so it's not going to be as big as I probably have thought at some point, but I really love the one that I've got now. Um, you know, my son, uh, is five. He is, uh, John Francis. He is, um, much smarter than I am. Uh, and he knows it. Um, <laughs> he, uh, to the point where yesterday I asked him why he made a decision and he couldn't, he, he knew it was a bad decision and he didn't want to tell me. So he just said, I'm not smart. He's smart enough to say, <laughs> that's good. I'm not smart. That's, that's why like, I'm just not smart dad. Um, and so, uh, you know, and then I have my daughter who has the most animated faces and, um, and is beautiful and, uh, the sweetest girl ever, even if she hates me. Um, she even hates with love. So, uh, <laughs> so she is, she is just, just amazing. And she's, way tougher than, than, uh, my son. And, you know, I'm sorry if you hear this in 10 years. Um, but when you were five and she was four, it was true. Um, <laughs> you know, and then, 
Yeah. Why don't you talk a little bit about uh, your adopted son? So, uh, that's so a pretty interesting story. How all that came about. Full so. circle for you too. Yeah. yeah so yeah. Our, our first one was um, our first two were 14 months apart. Um, it was a lot on Michelle. She uh, struggled a lot with being pregnant or breastfeeding for two straight years, and um, she made it clear that she did not want to be pregnant again. Um, and so we struggled for a long time between that, weathering, wondering whether it was permanent and the fact that I wanted more kids. And finally she admitted she wanted more kids and we decided we would be open to adoption, talked about it for a while and then, um, reached out to a buddy who is now my law partner, Brad Guillory and said, Hey, <clears throat> you got two adopted kids. What do we do to, uh, what do we need to do? And so he said, the first thing you need to do is tell all the OBGYNs and, um, and everyone, you know, that you're looking to adopt. And so I did that. Um, and we contacted a social worker to get our, um, our home study done. Uh, we had our home study scheduled for September 7th of 2018 on, um, August 24th of 2018 before we had even met with her. Uh, Brad called me and said, Hey, I just got a call from a doctor. A baby was born. The mom does not want to meet him. Uh, no prenatal care. They don't know if he's full term or not. Um, she has drugs in her system. Um, do you want the baby? And, and I was on speakerphone in the car with Michelle and we both said, yes. Like, uh, uh, I think I thought it was a girl. I know I thought it was a girl. I think, I don't know if, what he said, but, um, we didn't care. Like nothing mattered about the baby. Um, yes, we were on our way, um, we to the hospital. <clears throat> and so, uh, so I texted my family and I said, Hey, uh, guess what? We got a girl and, um, <laughs> and, uh, and I was very excited. We talked about names, uh, you know, baby girl names. And, um, and then, uh, we got to the hospital and, um, our daughter has a penis. So, uh, so then I got really excited and I said, guess what? She's a boy. And, um, and it was, uh, you know, it was, it was an amazing experience. We weren't ready, you know, fortunately, uh, the hospital, um, had to keep him in the NICU for a while to make sure there were no drugs in his system and that he didn't have, excuse me, that he didn't have any, um, problems with that. So we were able to spend time at target buying the things we needed for a baby that we weren't ready for. The process is a little different than normal because we hadn't done the home study. So we had to then finish the home study. And, um, and then on August 28th of this year, um, you know, the adoption was finalized. And Steve, awesome. Stephen is the godfather. <laughs> Brad is the other godfather. <laughs> that is truly incredible, Sean, with the story, everything coming full circle um, from the start, going through everything uh, that you went through at 18, 19 years old to, to come in full circle and adopting a child of your own. Um, I, I bet has some type of heartwarming feelings for you. And the last question that I would have for you, um, the healing process, did that take a while for you? Um, from the abortion. Correct. You know, it, it was, it was probably not until I, um, became open and, uh, and discussed it. And, and, you know, we didn't touch on this, but when I was in treatment and, and I was in, in therapy, um, that's when it was brought up. And I think that they were right that, uh, that over those years I had been trying to fill a void, um, from the pain of, of losing my child. Um, you know, I named my first child, Michael, um, that is helpful because it, it, it was a child and, um, mm -hmm. and, and he, he has a soul and, and he has a name and, and it, it makes it easier than just, um, an empty memory. Uh, 
you know, and then when I got out, that's probably something that I was open about more quickly than, uh, the addiction. Um, you know, I, I, I felt comfortable discussing that, um, probably not to the point that I, that I do now, but, um, I can remember the first time I got into it. Sean, first of all, thank you so much for sharing your story. It's so inspirational, motivational, and I know it's going to help a lot of people. Any words of advice for someone who might be contemplating abortion or maybe even going through addiction? Just, I know it's such a, I mean, that's, that's a lot to ask for in one answer, but just a, one little pearl that you could instill in the hearts of anyone out there going through that. So I would say to those people that are going through um, either of those, those things, um, you're not alone. Um, I think that it's really important for people to realize that they're not alone. I think that that's what gets people to that point. Um, you know, that they, they get to a point where they believe that there is no one that cares or is willing to, um, to be there for them. And I think that that's false. And I would say to everyone else, you know, that it's, it's incumbent upon us as a society to make sure that that first statement is true and that, um, that people are not alone and that we don't, um, you know, kind of pass them by whenever, whenever they reach out, even though the way they're reaching out might not be healthy because they don't know how to be healthy. They're asking for help. And if we can recognize that, then we can really, um, grow as a society. Yeah. Thanks for sharing your story, Sean. And, um, I've got a quote that I want to bring up and I think it's really, uh, touches on a lot of what you talked about. And it's funny because I wasn't even looking for any any scripture quotes or anything else like that today, but I had a patient this morning who came in. We were just chit-chatting. She's a podcast listener, so we were talking about it, and she tells me about a Bible quote that her son has on her chest. So I said, well, what is it? She told me what the quote was, and this is, this is it. It's from Genesis twenty-eight fifteen. It says, I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. So... It kind of just reminded me of uh, your story whenever I she shared that with me. So I was like, oh, I need to bring this up today. I like it. That's yeah, it's awesome. awesome. Well, look, Sean, we do. We appreciate you coming on, man. We appreciate you being our first guest. Uh, we didn't really know exactly what to do with this, but I think it turned out really well. We hope that um, this is this has definitely impacted myself, and I'm sure I can speak for john and um craig on it uh and hopefully it's impacted all our listeners in one way or another and we do appreciate you sharing the story with us buddy thank you getting me out of work (laughs) (laughs) and until next time we'll catch you later hey y'all if you've been enjoying picking up what we've been laying down subscribe and never miss an episode find us on social media and let us know who's driving your car this week You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Who's Driving Your Car Podcast. Perfect timing, sun is shining, nothing more I need. If you feel like this your best life, won't you sing with me?